And this is Politics Friday on NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're broadcasting from the state capitol today. Thanks for tuning in. As we've been noting all year, Democrats in the Minnesota Senate have a razor-thin one-vote majority, 34 Democrats to 33 Republicans. That means for big bills to pass, really for any bills to pass, the Democrats have to stick together. It also raises the stakes for my first two guests this hour. They're the only two members of that Senate DFL caucus from northern Minnesota, where Republicans have tended to do well over the past few years. Senators Rob Kupak and Grant Hoschild are about three months into their term in the Senate. Rob Kupak is a former TV meteorologist. He represents Senate District 4 in northwestern Minnesota, which includes all of Moorhead, most of Clay County, part of Becker County. Grant Hoschild directs a health care foundation. He represents District 3 in northeastern Minnesota. It's a huge area. It stretches from Duluth to the Arrowhead, back to Kuchiching, part of Itasca counties. He lives in Hermantown. Senator Kupak, Senator Hoschild, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Uh, Senator Kupak, let me start with you. What's the session been like so far? Kind of a big transition from TV meteorology to the state Senate. It is a big transition. Uh, Yes and no. A lot of television, I always say, is hurry up and wait. And so uh, some of politics is hurry up and wait, although we've done a lot of things right up at the beginning that's been that's been moving pretty fast. So uh, it it is a little bit of a transition to the speed uh, and the length of the days, too, Mm -hmm. are unbelievable. Yeah. And Senator Hoschild, I mean, you've got uh, some experience in politics, but uh, what's surprised you about the job so far? Well, yeah, exactly, Mike. I've worked in the U.S. Senate and Department of Agriculture in the past, but this is a whole nother level when you're the actual elected individual. Everybody wants to talk to you about their issue. You have uh, multiple bills that you have to be up on uh, before you vote. So it's, it's you know, managing a lot of balls in the air all at once. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we're uh, giving you a little shelter here then from some of the people trying to get your attention, or maybe <laughs> we're just wasting your time. <laughs> I hope not. Um is it about what you expected or has anything really taken you by surprise? It's about what I expected. Um, you know, I knew how the process worked. I've done this sort of thing before. I think what is the big surprise for me is having four committees that are broadly different from education to labor, um, you know, to taxes. It's just all these different issues and making sure that you kind of set your mind when you get to those different topics and and focus on them. Uh, that's been that's been an eye-opening experience. And Senator Kupak, uh, about the same for you? About the same. I, I thought there might be just a little more downtown I, downtime. I keep joking. I brought some gym clothes to work out in and they've sat in the drawer all session. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the other thing I think is uh, working so closely with people, how quickly relationships form and, and you're doing – you're coming together. It's really a small group to do big, important work and, and how quickly you form friendships uh, and work together as a team. And you mentioned the pace of it. And, you know, I've watched a few of these sessions and and the pace really does seem to be, I mean, you guys really hit the ground running this time. Is that hard being a first term member to to kind of get up on some of these issues? I think a little bit. I mean, it's not that, you know, these these are all issues that that senators and representatives have been working on for years. Some of them just never got a hearing. And so some of them, yes, are more well-versed because, oh, we've been working on this for four years. We haven't gotten a hearing. And we do have to kind of catch up to their speed hmm. uh, to, to go on that. So it has, I think, for the freshmen, uh, it is a, it is a, it's a quick learning curve, I would say. Yeah, I would add that 
you know, over the last couple of sessions, we've seen a lot of gridlock. We've seen a lot not getting done. And I know I was a city councilor last session when we failed to get a bonding bill, failed to get a tax bill. And that was really frustrating for me. And that's really one of the things that inspired me to run. So I've been, you know, frankly, excited for us to really move forward and make progress in Minnesota. Well, let's talk about some of the issues then, because uh, we'll see whether there's progress by the time the session ends. Um, Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday approved three bills involving guns. Uh, one of them is uh, it expands background checks for uh, private transfers of handguns and, and uh, semi-automatic rifles. Another one increases criminal penalties for uh, machine guns or you know alterations to guns that make them fire automatically. And the third would set up these uh, extreme risk protection orders. They call it a red flag law. Um, are these the kinds of bills you could support? And Senator Hoschild, let me start with you. Well, look, the Northland is different. Um, probably one of the highest gun ownership regions in our state. I grew up hunting with my family. Some of the fondest memories I have are hunting with my grandfather and my father. Um, and so I, I understand where people are coming from on these issues. I want to make sure that if we do something, that we do it right. Um, I've been taking time to talk to sheriffs and police in my district. I've had a couple of town halls where I've talked to constituents, gun owners, and then I've also talked to advocates and mothers who are concerned about their child going to school uh, with many of the school shootings that we've had across our country over the last many years. I have young kids. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and so I'm trying my best to be thoughtful about this issue. I haven't made a decision yet, but I'm doing the due diligence that I think my constituents expect me to do on issues like this. Senator Kupek, what about you? Have you had a chance to look at these bills yet? I haven't. I'm taking, I think, a similar tack to Senator Hochschild. I have, I have heard, you know, repeatedly from, from my local law enforcement what their thoughts are on some of these bills. Same things. Uh, I have a very active Moms Demand Action Group in Moorhead, and we had a meeting together. I've got a meeting coming up at one of the local gun ranges, and we're going out to talk to them. And, and you know, one of the concerns, too, is that with some of the bills, you know, particularly ones around maybe some of the safe storage issues, that, that there is concern. You know, people who live in a very rural area, they have very different needs than people maybe who live in an urban area. And some of it is we're, we're far away from police responding or or even sometimes wild animals were just wandering in to the places that they live. And so there is a, a slightly different, I think, view and in, in, in sometimes even need for firearms in more rural locations. But with such a tight uh, margin in the Senate, such a tight majority, uh, your votes really become important here. Um, you can You can pass these bills or they can die based on how one or both of you vote. What kind of pressure are you feeling? Um, uh, Senator Hostchild, are, are you getting a lot of people trying to bend your ear on stuff like this? Mike, I'm getting pressure on every issue. <laughs> I'll be honest. And the pressure's good. It keeps me honest. I think it's making me a good legislator because it forces me to dig in on every issue that's before us. It it forces me to have the difficult conversations that many legislators may not feel the need to have. And so I'm really proud of the region that I represent, um, the tightness of my district, because hopefully it makes me a better legislator. Mm -hmm. And Senator Kupak? Yeah, I think the same thing. And I will say, you know, I think our leadership has been very cognizant of that we are a pride of really a big tent party. We have several outstate 
uh, Democrats in the party, and as well as an urban core. And I think they've been really trying to make sure they bring us together on the issues and see where we can form consensus. I think, I think the 100% clean energy bill that passed, that's a great example of a lot of work that went in, you know, behind the scenes, people making compromises. That was a really good compromise bill, uh, that got through. And I think that's the tack they've been taking, and I expect that to continue on these issues moving forward. Well, if I heard what uh, Senator Latz uh, said yesterday in his committee, if I heard right what he said, uh, that gun storage bill not going to come up this year. It's going to be pretty much these three. Um, so does that make it easier for you or harder, Senator Kupak? I think it makes it – I mean that bill, there were a lot of concerns I think in my district about that. So that probably does make it easier for me that if we don't have to deal with – in some ways uh, was maybe one of the more contentious bills. That bill in particular, I got a lot uh, of emails and constituent feedback about. So yes, if that bill does not come up, sure. And that one would have said that uh, guns and ammunition had to be stored separately and locked up. Right. The, the right. And I think there are things, you know, and most – most responsible gun owners, they know they know what is the right thing to do, and and they do that. And the the really and some of the ways with that bill too that enforcing that becomes very difficult, and it becomes a case where probably some sort of tragedy has happened, and then maybe we're just heaping on on, on another penalty on a really tragic situation. So. Mike, I, yeah, I would just add, I would love to look for ways to incentivize proper storage of firearms, uh, make sure that our, you know, firearm safety is is expanding on that need and the importance of that issue. And then thirdly, I know there's some counties in my region that are talking about a public information campaign talking about proper storage and the suicide rate that's happening in some of the more rural parts of our state and region. So I think there's opportunities here to address this issue, but that bill in particular was something that I couldn't support. And if a, a bill is tied to um, higher criminal penalties, like this one with m machine guns, and and I think we've seen here in the Twin Cities, uh, you know, some of the crimes are committed with these guns that have been altered so that they fire in automatic. You know, you press the trigger once and it shoots a number of bullets. Um, is that an easier vote? Just because it, it does, uh, it, it's related to a, a higher penalty for a gun crime. Center. Well, I, I think we absolutely have to look at crime and gun deaths in a holistic way. Um, we can't just focus on one method. And so addressing crime, um, addressing penalties is something that I'm interested in diving in on. I also think we need to look at the mental health crisis that we're facing in our country and among our youth. Um, there are opportunities to look at this holistically, and I hope that we continue to do that. I would agree. I think some of the penalties, I know when I've talked to my local law enforcement they they express some frustration that they know these people have committed a crime with a gun and then they very easily go right back out and get another gun. Mm -hmm. And that I know is very concerning to them. But and also we come Grant and I come from, you know, districts that are the it is a well not to say we don't have any crime, but it is a little bit different look and, and I think sometimes a lot of people in greater Minnesota might view some of these as, you know, they recognize, yes, in the Twin Cities there is a problem. And, and where we can find that compromise again between greater Minnesota and the urban core of, of the Twin Cities uh, to fix that, that's where we – that's, I think, where we can, be, we can be good allies too and try to bridge that gap. Okay, so just uh, to, to where you stand, um, still looking at these bills, not going to commit one way or another at this point – but listening to people, talking to people, and you'll see where you end up. Is that fair? I would say that's fair. That's fair. That's what people expect, and that's what we're doing.
Well, let's uh, switch to another issue then that's gotten some attention, and that is uh, taxes. Uh, You both ran on a pledge to uh, eliminate state taxes on Social Security income. Um, Some of the DFL leaders are saying, well, it's not so simple because that gets expensive, and really a lot of people don't pay taxes on their Social Security already, and if you if you give uh, if you cut the whole thing, you're giving people at the top a pretty good tax break. Um, Senator Kupek, what what about that? Uh, you still for a hundred percent? I am still, and it is a in my district. It's and probably it's a little different than Senator Hochschild's district because I border North Dakota. Because certainly in my district, I see people when they hit that retirement age, they've lived their whole lives maybe in Minnesota, and then they cross over. Because uh, I border Fargo, they cross right across the river. They can keep all their friends. They're living basically in the same community, but they're under a different tax structure uh, when they move across the river. It is a weirdly bipartisan issue in my district. I get just as many Democrats as I do Republicans who say, hey, they'll stop me in the grocery store and say, hey, you're going to eliminate that tax on Social Security? So it is. it is a very popular position in my district and plays a little differently because we are right on a on a border state mm. where you can basically it's not if you were living in Brainerd that might be a different challenge to go move to Wisconsin or North Dakota but not in my community so that it's 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 really important i think in my area and do you think most of the people who are saying that are actually paying taxes on their social security or you know i think right now it dips down uh, far enough. So, you know, we, we have, uh, we have a lot of higher education institutions, you know, mm-hmm. in Fargo, Moorhead, North Dakota states right across the river. And I know for a fact that, you know, for, they're retired professors. So they're not, they're not high income people mm-hmm. and they have a comfortable retirement, but they are already at that level that they are getting hit, uh, on that social security tax. So certainly, certainly, yes, there are, is at the lower end, those people are not paying tax on that. But it also gets into the issue of, in some ways, you know, this is all – in some ways, you've you've already paid on this and you're just kind of getting it back. Should we be taxing that? There is some fairness issues uh, around that as well. And Grant Hoschild, what about you? Uh, are you still uh, committed to a total elimination of the tax on Social Security? Similarly, I support uh, a full elimination and part of it is the the idea that this is a double tax on folks. They feel like this is an earned benefit, something that has been taken from their payroll and now in retirement they don't feel like it should be taxed and I think that's exactly right. Now, I know, you know, for example, in in my district, I have had constituents talk to me about this issue, and they're looking for relief in a lot of different areas. Um, I know that property tax increases have been uh, rapidly increasing in northeastern Minnesota. So I want to look at a, a wide array of ways that we can provide benefits, whether it's rebate checks, property tax relief, social security tax cuts, um, you know, child care tax credits for young families like mine to afford the burden of child care. And then that strengthens our workforce. So my point being, I'm on the tax committee, I'm looking holistically at all of these issues, and how do we provide the state's biggest historical tax relief ever? And that's what I'm really focused on. On the Social Security tax specifically, um, could you live with a phase-out of the tax, or does it have to be the entire thing gone this year? I want to get as far as we can get on eliminating that tax on Social Security, and that's what I'm going to fight for. 
we know that there are others in the legislative body that don't agree with that. And that's how legislative bodies work. Mm -hmm. And so I want to work with everybody on pushing what I believe in and pushing for my constituents. And I think we'll see, like I said, the biggest tax relief in the history of our state. And I'm excited to implement that. Um, our time is uh, slipping slipping by here quickly, and, and that's too bad. But uh, let me ask you about just quickly uh, – some of the social issues, abortion, you've already had a, a vote on that to, uh, to uh, guarantee the right to that that the governor has signed. Uh, some of these uh, transgender, uh, the House passed a bill last night to make it a, a safe state for people coming from other states. Um, are you for those issues? Is that, uh, does that conflict with what you're hearing from your constituents or is that in line with what you're hearing from your constituents? And Senator Hostile, how about you? Well, we know for sure during the campaign that protecting women's reproductive health, making those decisions between their doctor and themselves was a critical issue. And this is something that I campaigned very hard on. And so taking that vote was an easy one uh, for me. You know, this other bill that was heard in the House, we have not uh, had that in the Senate yet. So I'm still looking into that bill and, and figuring out what's all in there. Rob Kupak. And I think, you know, like uh, much of the country, I think I come from a, a very a, a district that has very different views on two sides of it. Uh, Moorhead within that city uh, has become has become more and more solidly Democratic, and then on the other side, uh, it's still a fairly you know Republican area. So I'm trying always to find to find those ways uh, to bridge that and, and come around. So obviously, I hear from both sides on that. Uh, same thing on the abortion issue. I ran on that issue, and even in the Republican districts when I was out campaigning, you heard people saying, you know, it's gone too far. We need to stop and we need to just put it down in the Minnesota statues. And same thing on the other issues too, the other social issues. I'm generally not in favor of things that kind of take away rights from people. So I think I come from that. And I think that's a, that's a, you know, a fairly kind of libertarian also just kind of you, I think a, a good American value, let's not take away other people's rights. So that's sort of the way I approach this from. Let me uh, finish with a, a very complicated question that I should have asked earlier and that I'm going to um, What do you think people in the Twin Cities don't understand about where you live? And what do you think people where you live don't understand about the Twin Cities? And I'll, I'll give you like 30 seconds each on that one. Senator Hoschild. Well, Northeast Minnesota is one of the most beautiful parts of Minnesota. Without my region, I would argue Minnesota wouldn't have a lot to chirp about because we have the Boundary Waters and the North Shore and the places that everybody wants to, to visit. In addition to that, in our rural areas, that's where we get our food, our energy, our manufacturing, our hardworking people. Um, in order for Minnesota to work, in, in order for our country to work, we have to uh, have our rural areas that provide a lot of these critical resources. And that's what my district does. And Senator Kupek? I would say, uh, you know, Clay County is the fastest growing county outside of the Twin Cities metro. And when you take Moorhead and you slap it together with Fargo, we are the largest metropolitan district outside of the Twin Cities metro. So I think there's a perception that my area well, we do have a lot of agriculture that it's all farms, but we're also, we also have some urban things going on too. And I think there's not a recognition that we are this big city that's out on the western kind of frontier of Minnesota. So I think I am constantly reminding people of that because it is, it is, it is a unique situation in my district. And I think on the flip side of that too, I think people in my district, we hear so many crime stories about the Twin Cities and not to say that the crime is going up, but you know, I, I think 
some of it is overblown when they people are like, I won't even go into the Twin Cities anymore. Hmm. Uh, I've been, you know, having, you know, staying here now for three months. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, it, you know, it's a little bit different than obviously living in Moorhead, but it is not. Uh, there's still lots of things to do, and it's still it's still a great place uh, to come to for a little bit of an urban experience. Well, I want to thank both of you so much for coming by. This has been great, and our time went way too fast. That's DFL Senator Rob Kupek of Moorhead and DFL Senator Grant Hoschild of Hermantown. Good luck for the rest of the session. I hope we get to talk again. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Now, this is Politics Friday, and of course, Minnesota politicians have lives outside the Capitol, just like you and me. When they're not working, they're spending time with family, doing their hobbies. Some have careers outside of politics and the law. Let's hear from one of those politicians now, DFL Representative Maria Isa Perez-Vega of St. Paul. I'm a mother. Uh, I'm a daughter. I am a youth worker. I am a songwriter. I'm a cultural community organizer, and I'm also a performing artist rapper. I'm a hip-hop artist. My name is State Representative Maria Isa Perez Vega. I carry a lot of different hats. I like to wear many different hats, but it all comes uh, in a form of movement work for the people. When I say housing rights, you say it's human rights. Housing rights? Housing rights? I grew up in this great community circle um, coming out of this group called the B Girl B Summit that happened in. 2005, right when I was a senior in high school and graduating, I think I performed the first, very first summit, International Women in Hip Hop Summit that took place in Minneapolis um, a day before I graduated high school. And it really expanded um, my mind into what this scene and what a global impact women make into the culture of hip hop. And to be a part of that is something very special. It came from, you know, curation of so many um, different women in so many different platforms, whether they were hip-hop artists themselves from all the different elements or just women of the arts and women of color that this movement has given us to have a voice. It's given us to be a part of, of history. I don't come from generational wealth. My family doesn't come from generational wealth. As Puerto Ricans who migrated and were drafted to war and were, you know, grew up in New York City and came to Minnesota uh, to seek these opportunities in connecting with other movements, such as the American Indian movement, such as the Black Social Justice movement, you know, the Latino and Chicanos movement that was here. So it was all in the advocacy of what's needed still, you know, housing. Healthcare, it all touches personally to me. When I say bring it, you say home. Bring it, bring it, bring it. The value of seeing strength and empowerment of organizing comes from the West Side. I wouldn't be where I'm at if it wasn't for that town. I wouldn't be where I'm at if it wasn't for the strong community and cultural organizing and advocacy and the celebration of diversity if it wasn't for the West Side. It's raised me in a village um, of pride, in a village of being 
comfortable to express our Latinidad. In a community that's the first Latino community in the state of Minnesota, it's the connection of where the development of Latino economics really uh, created an infrastructure for our state Latinos, you know, um, and now uh, I'm a part of that history. Twelve hours before I was sworn in, in the same day. So midnight, the album was released on all streaming platforms. And then at noon, I was sworn in as the state representative in District 65B, St. Paul, in West St. Paul. The work is still being done. That's my job. I'm an artist. So my, my artist sessions, you know, are now around this legislative session, right? Committee conference to the press rooms. I came in here because... If we don't get engaged in this system, whether we are a rapper or whether we're a doctor or whether we're just, you know, a concerned citizen that may have a disability and isn't getting the care that they need, that 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 those kids understand and that those folks understand that you can't complain without doing something about it. NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. DFL leaders and the governor agreed on a broad outline for a new state budget this week. They've given targets to committees and the committees will spend the rest of the session filling in the details to hit those targets. Overall, the plan increases the current budget by nearly $18 billion. Public schools would get a big boost, as would housing, human services, and transportation plan includes about $3 billion for tax relief, which could include rebates, tax credits, property tax relief, and increases to local government aid. But that $3 billion is not enough for Republicans. Joining me now is Republican Senator Eric Pratt of Prior Lake. He's the lead Republican on the Senate Finance Committee. Senator, thanks for coming by today. Thank you. Obviously, Republicans wanted to see a bigger tax cut than is included in in these DFL targets, right? Well, yeah, we understand that we're sitting on a record surplus because we've collected more in taxes than we've spent. And uh, we believe that, you know, low-income and middle-income Minnesotans really deserve some of that money back. They're struggling with the rising cost of living, um, and we think we've got enough to help out uh, students in schools. We think we've got enough to 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 uh, do a significant bonding bill and, and – bring jobs and projects to the state, and we can also give significant tax relief, and not just one-time tax relief, but permanent tax relief, particularly to senior citizens. So that uh, eliminating the tax on Social Security uh, entirely, that's that's a top issue for Senate Republicans? It's been a top issue since last session. Uh, um, you know, not very often do we get a chance to eliminate a tax, and when we're, you're one of only 11 states in the entire country, that's taxing it, we have to look back and say, is this the right thing to do? We're losing our retirees to other states. They're moving out of state, not just because of Social Security tax, but for a whole host of reasons. But this this is one thing that we could do because we've already taxed this money when they earned it. Uh, we shouldn't be taxing it when they get it back as a, as a retirement benefit. What do you say to those, including the governor, who have said, uh, you know, there was a deal on the table at the end of the session last year, and 
for whatever reason, it didn't pass. But, you know, the governor and the DFL uh, leaders in the House, they wanted a special session. They they were out there saying, you know, come on back, let's keep working. And Senate Republicans just didn't want to do it. So, so why, you know, you can't complain now because you didn't take the deal then. <laughs> well, it's that's not exactly the way I saw it. Um, you know, it's it's kind of funny because by the Constitution, a tax bill and a bonding bill have to start in the House of Representatives. And neither one of them got onto the floor last year. In fact, I remember by about 9 o'clock at night, we had been on the floor debating bills, getting ready to pass them. I think the uh, House of of Representatives, uh, DFL leadership had them on the floor only 19 minutes that day. Um, You know, I think Senate Republicans would have been open to a special session, but some of the criteria that the governor was putting into those negotiations just caused them not to fly. So I think it, was, it wasn't a failure of Senate Republicans. It was a failure overall of just being able to reach an agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, what leverage do you have now? The, the Republicans in the Senate have uh, withheld their support for a bonding bill, um, which is needed because, you know, it commits the state to debt mm-hmm. and it takes a supermajority. Um, I noticed in these targets, they budget for an all-cash bonding bill. Is that the way in that that you now say we'll support a bonding bill if you give us a bigger tax cut? You know, it's we've always been wanting to work together, and I think what's been frustrating is the lack of collaboration that the DFL has had with our caucus. We said we wanted significant permanent tax relief, and we put Social Security on the table. Um, we would have passed a bonding bill had we been able to do Social Security. I thought it was interesting the other day that. When Senator Johnson stood up on the Senate floor and talked about these targets that we were raising, uh, spending $20 billion, and, and which works out to about a $30 billion increase in our, in our state spending, and there, there wasn't a lot in permanent tax relief. Yeah, we've got a $3 billion target in the first biennium, but then it's less than half of that going forward. And as you mentioned, that's not permanent tax relief to Minnesotans. That could be... Uh, aid to counties, aid to local governments, and and other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting after Senator Johnson's comments that uh, Senator Nick French stood up and said, well, had Republicans passed a bonding bill, we'd have more for tax relief. And that's exactly what we've been saying. And yet, rather than come work with us on tax relief, they decided that they'd rather go an all-cash bill than reach across the aisle. And I think Minnesotans expect us to work together better than that. Do you think it'll stay that way, though, or do you think there will be eventually some kind of deal where you'll back a bonding bill if you can, I don't know, if you get the this, this Social Security tax or get some other tax cuts that you want? I think that, I think there is a way to work out a deal. Um, we've been very clear. We're not opposed to the bonding bill. Many of us have important projects. I have one for uh, the 169 uh, uh, interchange in Jordan, which is a a, a traffic safety issue. I've got a riverbank stabilization project in Shakopee that that needs to be done, or we could have uh, an environmental crisis if you know in a few years. Um, but it's not one or the other. It's being able to do both. And the way that the bonding bill was was presented, it was kind of a take it or leave it. And we're really looking to work together. We're 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 really looking to to collaborate and lead because that's what I. We have a one-seat majority, mm-hmm. or they have they a one-seat majority in the Senate. Half of the people of Minnesota are represented by Republican senators, and yet 
we're completely cut out and our constituents are completely cut out of the conversation. Well, you know, I uh, before you came on, I was talking to two uh, DFL senators from rural Minnesota or outstate Minnesota, I should say, and uh, they both said they wanted that total total elimination of Social Security. So, is there a do you have some leverage there? <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm not on the leadership side, so I don't know what what type of leverage we have. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm the lead on the finance committee, so I'm I'm kind of the Senate uh, numbers nerd on the Republican side. Um, the numbers work out. We can make it work out. It's whether or not leadership on, on the, in the majority has the political will to be able to reach across the aisle. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the numbers and the spending in these targets, um, they have, a, I think, more than $2 billion for K-12 uh, schools. Is that about right? Is that too much? Is that, will Republicans vote for that? You know, I'd really have to take a look at where, where the spending is. Now, what that does not include is the additional $400 million that they've already put into the school lunch program. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the problem I have is that they're not necessarily being transparent with Minnesotans. They're spending more on K-12, which is fine. Um, Senate Republicans want to make support public education. I served on a school board for 12 years. My mom was a public school teacher. Um, I was brought up to believe that our public schools are, are really a, a, a a great asset for our communities and really are a uh, level the playing field. Um, I actually grew up uh, for a period of time. We were on public assistance and we, we were able to come out of that. And in part, because we were educated. Uh, Having said that, we want to make sure that the money that we spend goes to students um, to help them be successful in the classroom. I've always, we want to make sure that we can lower class sizes. We want to make sure that, um, you know, we're, we're focused on literacy and student achievement because we've got one of the worst um, uh, gaps in education between students of color. And it's been like that for almost 10 years. It's embarrassing. We need to put more money in and literacy, especially having students reading at third grade, um, is so important for the rest of their edu- uh, academic career. I don't know if you've had a chance to look very closely at these targets yet, but is there anywhere that you think the Democrats aren't spending enough? <laughs> you know, I I don't know. I know there's I know there are a couple of uh, of chairs that aren't happy with their targets. They were hoping for larger targets. Um, you know, certainly one area we we could probably find some common ground is uh, helping out our nursing homes. Uh, the reimbursement rates, and I, I serve on a board of a, a community board for a local nursing home. We're struggling uh, with the reimbursements to keep people on staff and to attract uh, uh, new employees. Uh, the the reimbursements we get from the state don't cover the cost that it takes to care for a patient, and those need to be more realistic. And I know Senator John Hoffman's been working on that. Um, and our nursing homes are so incredibly important for many of our communities and in outstate Minnesota that we could probably find some common grounds in an area like that. Uh, I know it's, it's uh, tough to say because you're not in the majority, and they are. Um, do you, but just based on what's happened so far in the session, do you think Republicans will have a say in this final budget as it rolls out over the next few weeks? 
I don't know. I know I know that when I go home and when I talk to other when I talk to Minnesotans across the state, they want us to work together. And I you know, that's completely up to the to the Senate Democrats now as far as how that how that works together. I can tell you Senate Republicans are standing there uh, ready to work with our colleagues across the aisle. We know we're in the minority. We know we're going to have a limited amount that we can get done, but we're ready to help as long as we can move to forward together. Senator Pratt, thanks so much for coming by today. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's Senator Eric Pratt. He's a Republican from Prior Lake. He's a ranking minority member on the Senate Finance Committee. This is Politics Friday. Let's listen now to some of the voices we heard at the Capitol this week. As a senior, my journey might not look like the face of homelessness, but here I am. I am only one person out of many seniors facing homelessness. Thinking back on the difficulties I had finding a place, the most wonderful feeling would be to know that other persons won't have to go through what I did. A state-based voucher program would do that. It is time to help all Minnesotans. It is time to bring it home, Minnesota. And I'm, I'm going to say that our children are depending on it. They really don't have a lot of voice in these spaces. They don't have a lot of say-so in those committee rooms. They really don't have a lot of impact around things that are happening in our community at all unfortunately. But guess what? The, the images and the way that we are treating them now in 10 or 15 years when they do have the opportunity is going to be tremendously negative if we don't do something right now to show them that it's the adult's responsibility to care about everybody's well-being. There are no adequate words to describe how it feels to deliver a baby who will never come home. As all birthing parents need and deserve, I needed time away from work to recover from pregnancy, as well as time to grieve our devastating loss. Once I ran out of sick time, I asked to access my paid parental leave, leave that human resources previously told me I could access as a state employee. However, even though I was expressly told that I met all of the eligibility requirements for paid parental leave, the judicial branch denied my request for paid leave, stating that the unwritten intent of the policy is for parents to bond with their baby. In the two years since Blair was stillborn, we have found an entire community of parents whose children have died at birth or in infancy. Many of these parents did not have access to paid leave and had to decide whether to return to work immediately or take time off without receiving a paycheck. Minnesotans should not have to sacrifice their livelihood and financial security in order to care for themselves and the people they love. Minnesota can do better. Minnesotans deserve better. And I'm just wondering what this newfound love for aligning everything with Senate language is here in this body. I don't think it's something that we need to aspire to doing. I've never seen it like this before, where every day the, the big talking point is we're aligning our language with the Senate. Big flipping deal. Folks, this is scary. This is a runaway train of spending in Minnesota that Minnesota taxpayers will be paying for years and years to come. 
We're working for Minnesotans. We're not working for Minnesota government. And this budget is a reflection of Minnesota government growth. We need to come together. We need to take time. This is the opportunity to do that. Pare down this, this budget, pare down these targets to represent the needs of Minnesotans. What Minnesotans wanted was a budget that supported education, a budget that supported working men and women of Minnesota, and that's what this Senate and the House and the Governor are going to deliver, working together, both parties. It probably goes without saying, so I'll say it anyway, Mr. President, had we not taken down the bonding bill and needed that money for cash, we would have more money available for tax cuts and for the other priorities of Minnesotans, but here we are. These bills, these gun bills that you guys are putting out here, not going to do anything to stop what's going on in my community where things are going now, where kids are getting shot. Sometimes, the most difficult of all, we help with funeral expenses for families who can't afford them. We have bought coffins for 10 children killed by guns. I hope you will look past these statements and recognize what is true. The trans and gender expansive community is wonderful and weird and full of life and joy and creativity we deserve safety and security like everybody else, and we need it right now. Minnesota has a chance to offer that refuge. That is what this bill is about. Just some of the voices we heard at the Minnesota Capitol this week. And to round out our Friday program, I am joined by our Capitol reporters, Brian Baxt and Dana Ferguson, to take a closer look at what's been going on and what might be coming up next. Brian and Dana, thanks for being here. Dana, let me start with you. Um, that bill passed last night to make Minnesota what they call a, a transgender refuge state. Um, we just heard some of the tape. Uh, it was a late one. You were up all night. Um, tell us more about why people thought that was needed and, and what happens from here. Sure. So at about 5.15 this morning, after five hours of debate overnight, the House passed the bill that would uh, offer some legal protections for transgender youth and their family who come to Minnesota seeking gender-affirming care. Uh, more specifically, if they were subpoenaed or potentially arrested, extradited, uh, the courts and others here would have guidance that they are not to comply with other states' laws. Uh, folks who supported the bill said that's important because eight states, including Iowa and South Dakota, have enacted bans on gender-affirming care, so it seems likely. And physicians here have said that they're having more calls from families in those states that are hoping to come to Minnesota for gender-affirming care. And lawmakers, in particular, DFLers, said there needs to be legal protection to help those folks access care here. It's passed the House. The governor says he'll sign it. What happens in the Senate? I guess we have yet to find out. It's up in a committee on judiciary today. It's not yet come up in the committee, but we expect that it will. Um, there might be lengthy discussion, but DFL leaders have said they support the proposal and think it's important to move it quickly. And Brian Baxt, you uh, noted this week that uh, Governor Walls in particular has really uh, tried to um, make a contrast with what's happening in Republican-led states on issues like this and other issues as well. Yeah, this issue, the abortion issue, and some of the education issues around kind of what sort of things are taught in the classrooms, the governor is really going out of his way to say Minnesota is doing this while a lot of Republican states, including some right along Minnesota's borders, are doing something entirely different. And 
I think there's a, a sense that uh, he's not doing this necessarily for a political aspiration of his own, but Democrats really want to hold up. Here's where we differ politically and philosophically from the other side. Okay, that's some policy. We talked earlier a little about some gun policy, some tax policy, but uh, it's really what's happening or starting to happen is this budget situation sorting itself out with the uh, budget targets from uh, DFL leaders and the governor. Brian, uh, I'm going to get way in the weeds here, but I I was a little bit surprised uh, that the governor was there with the legislative leaders announcing these targets. I mean, if I recall correctly, isn't this usually something the legislature does and then they have to negotiate with the governor? I had to check my calendar. It's March. And usually this is something that we see in April or May. You know, the, the, the House and the Senate usually come out with competing frameworks and then they try to merge them and then work with the governor to figure out what he will sign. This puts them on the same page early. This isn't set in stone. There could be changes. There probably will be changes as this moves along. But We really turn a corner next week, Mike. Can you feel it? We're in the budget season. Next week is when they really start to focus on those major budget bills that will comprise the next two-year budget for the state, which kicks in in July. Yeah, I can feel it. I I can't can't feel spring yet. Can't feel my toes sometimes when I go for a walk. But um, Dana, uh, does this mean that, you know, they've gone out of their way? We heard in, in some of the voices from the Capitol so a Republican representative saying, you know, you're lining up all the language in the House and Senate, so there are no conference committees. Are we expecting that to happen on some of these big budget bills? Um, what we've seen so far with DFLers leading both the Senate and the House and then Governor Walls in the governor's office is that they try to be in lockstep a whole lot more. Um, and on these budget targets, being aligned this early I mean, we could expect to see fewer conference committees if they are eager to all work together and just pass out the same things from both chambers. And it looks like Brian wants to chime in on this. Yeah, I mean, one thing that was almost aside from the governor during the press conference this week is that they started talking about these targets back in November when they really didn't even know what the full budget picture was going to be. But it just goes to show how after the election, when they found out that they were in control power in all three Uh, big areas of the state government, they went to work on trying to streamline this and we'll see if they can keep that harmony. There's some griping among committee chairs, as there usually is, Hmm. about who got what, who didn't get enough. But this is where the rubber will will meet the road, so to speak. And we heard from the uh, two uh, uh, northern Minnesota senators earlier that they're not necessarily on board with some of what the leaders are talking about, and specifically this issue about taxes on Social Security income. Yeah, you're going to see Republicans do all they can to pick off a member here or there or a group of members who don't necessarily agree with the larger philosophy. But when the pieces come together, it's going to be hard for some of these members to vote against an education bill that substantially ups education or a uh, bill that maybe takes care of long-term care or a bill that cuts taxes in any way. So it's one thing to talk about where you might want to defect, but it's another thing to defect. I guess we'll see. Um, Dana, what do you? what's coming up next week that you've got an eye on? 
We're going to have a whole lot more conversation about budget bills coming up. Um, after the deadline today, some policy omnibus bills are going to be clearing committees. So a lot of big bills moving through and then making their way to the floors. So potentially more long evenings, which sitting here after an all-nighter oh, no. sounds not great, but that's the job <laughs> we were hired to do. <laughs> And I'm glad you volunteered for the all night. Yeah, you're welcome. So a uh, policy omnibus, that means stuff like education, health care? It does, yeah. That means different areas where lawmakers would propose to make changes on what students are learning or what goes on in schools or in health care programs or different things like that. And Brian, uh, do you think the DFL majorities are going to all stick together on this stuff? You know, they've so far they have. It's been surprising as to how much they've stuck together on. There's been a few uh, p- members who have voted against things so far. There was one last night who voted against the, the bill, but that Dana covered. But by and large, they're they're working together behind the scenes. I mean, this paid family leave thing is one example where they've really started to kind of pull that back in, and that's t- just goes to show that members are are negotiating before it goes public. All right, that's Brian Bax and Dana Ferguson, our two Capitol reporters. Thanks so much for keeping an eye on things for us, even if it does get late. That's our Friday program for this week. Our producers, Matthew Alvarez, Derek Ramirez, and Josh Savageo, gave us great technical support today. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll see you again here next week. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to the Politics Friday podcast on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live on the radio, tune in each Friday at noon. Join us for interviews with lawmakers and conversations about what's been happening at the Capitol and beyond.